Eto's understanding of Saigo's head was part of his own neo-nationalist vision, but it would be a mistake to see Saigo solely as a symbol of the Japanese right. Eto's account of Yamagata weeping is as fanciful as the 1870s idea of Saigo's ascension into heaven, but both spring from a desire to transcend the contradictions of modern life. The quest for a world both modern and traditional underlay not only Eto's passionate political rhetoric, but also the comic quips in Ninshiki, such as the monk who wanted to enjoy women and meat but not lose the support of a devoted parish. More seriously, both Eto and Ninshiki artists who employed the phrase, a new government, rich in virtue, saw in Saigo the potential for a life that was practical, modern, and yet deeply moral. Saigo himself failed to reconcile these contradictions. He found authenticity only by withdrawing from public life, but his life was by then too public to allow him privacy. Thus, Saigo was a failure, but he failed with such singularity of purpose, self-awareness, and equanimity that, as Eto observed, his failure was as compelling as any victory. Thus, his missing head continues to fire the imagination. Welcome to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to. My name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Alex. Hello. And Tom. Hello. Troy cannot be with us today. He is going down south to uh, help, um, I guess, fix his grandparents' house, right? That was what his excuse was. I think he's just drinking Bud Light. Yeah. He's Expired drinking decade-old Bud, Bud Light. <laughs> it's so weird, because when he said that he was um, that he was drinking that Bud Light, he said it uh, expired in 2010. And, oh my uh, god! And I was like, like, it's weird because I graduated that year, and like every time I hear that year, it, I mean, obviously time moves forward, but it just it gets farther and farther away. You know, mm-hmm. it used to be like, oh, I, I was in high school not that long ago. It's been eight, almost nine years now, and that Bud Light stayed the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's disgusting. So, um, this week. We're discussing the second half of The Last Samurai, The Life and Battles of Saigo Takamori by Mark Ravina. This is a biography of Saigo Takamori, who we met briefly in Beasley's Meiji Restoration. Saigo is a legendary figure in modern Japanese history and was an early proponent of imperial as opposed to shogunate rule in Japan. However, as the Meiji Restoration's direction pointed towards modernization of Japan rather than preservation of its traditions, Saigo became the last rebel of a dying world. The second half takes us from Saigo's ascendancy in domestic politics and eventually ends. Uh, the second half takes us through Saigo's ascendancy in domestic politics, the establishment of the Meiji government, and up to his rebellion uh, against and death by the very state he helped to found. Saigo is a contradictory figure of principle and practicality, supporting the needs of a modern state that will maintain virtue and compete with the West while liquidating the traditional hierarchies of Japan. By the time Saigo realized that the needs of modernization went out on the ideals of samurai virtue, it was too late. Mark Ravina is a professor of history at Emory College, who specializes in 18th and 19th century Japanese history. He has written many articles for various journals, as well as another book on Japan, Land and Lordship in Early Modern Japan. Ravina is currently working on a history of the Meiji Restoration called Japan's 19th Century Revolution, a transnational history of the Meiji Restoration. All right, boys. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. It has been. Yeah. It feels like we haven't been on a regular schedule for months now. I don't know if that's true, but it, it feels it feels that way. I feel we like that's probably there for a little bit. Early, early quarantine, we were killing it. We were so regular. Uh, 
But yeah, it's falling off. I think part of it too is like the now that I'm, you know, not in the immediate vicinity and we can't just get together physically. Um, that's because, you know, we didn't really stop uh, until we stopped for a very pre- brief period of time at the beginning of COVID, but we've pretty much been gathering in uh, at Myrtle Street now that I'm not there. You know, it's harder. That's true. That's true. We're podcasting from a distance. That is true. Socially distant podcasting. The most distant we've ever been. It's true. It's true. I mean, it is true. Are you both living in Mass? No, no, I'm still up in New Hampshire. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to... I kind of want a snowbird this year. I really am dreading the winter. I do not... I Like, once the holidays are over, like, I just 100% stop giving a shit about <laughs> New England. <laughs> I feel you, man. Um, I'm definitely going to... do. Well, I guess I can, I don't know. I'm going to do some kind of, I was going to say a Caribbean vacation, but I don't know if that's going to happen, but a Florida trip or something for this summer, winter for sure. Hell yeah, dude. Like, Let's go to Miami. Yeah. I mean, yeah, actually, if, if you'd want to, that that would be pretty sweet or anywhere warm in the States. I mean, I, I can't do it. Yeah. A whole winter is absolutely brutal. I mean, any winter at all is brutal. I, I agree. Like I like winter until new year's and the only reason i like it is because of like the nostalgia of like childhood movies and like christmas and you know when snow is falling and like oh everything's so great and whatnot but like it probably starts snowing certain years like that first week of december so after three weeks in the holidays it's like you mean i gotta deal with this for like two and a half more months like i'm not about that i'm really more of like a february and march just fuck those months uh, I, I can kind of deal with the rest, honestly, but like those two months are always without a doubt, just the worst months of the year. That's true. Uh, yeah. And it just feels like, you know, sometimes you have years where winter seems to extend its way into fucking April and you're like, you know, thing you might get like one warmish day, you know, on the whole month of April and you have to wait till May till it gets even like kind of nice. Yeah. Um, I do think yeah. we, got, we did get a pretty good spring this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, we had a really mild winter this last winter, but that's like the scary part because you know you're not going to get a second one. So it's like, right. I mean, we've had some winters, not that it's very frequent, but once every like six or seven years, it, it starts snowing like the end of November. And like, yeah, it thaws and melts and stuff, but it's still cold as balls. And it feels like winter starts in November and then it doesn't loosen up until April. So you're talking like five full months of just garbage. And like, I remember as a kid it's snowing in late October multiple times growing up. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. I remember times that we had snow for Halloween. So that's like your landmark right there. Like snow dude, on the ground. Yeah. Like, yeah, I do too. Which is just awful. It's just terrible. It is terrible. Yeah. So, um, you know, welcome to the, uh, the bitch about the weather podcast where yeah. we bitch. So you don't have to yeah, welcome to We're the actually... New England guys whining about winter. Yeah. <laughs> Unpaid meteorologists. How about the weather, boys? <laughs> um, so um, let's get into the book a little bit. Uh, let's do it. So now that we get to the end, you know, poor old Saigo, he's dead on those hills. I forget what the hills are called, but he's dead now. Trying to, um, I didn't, you know, I guess the thing that surprised me most throughout this whole book was just I didn't understand how important of a political figure Psycho was, you know. My impression of it from the movie, not that that should uh, 
I should assume it's historically accurate, but my impression is that, you know, maybe it was like a high ranking Lord that was forever against, right. The, um, the political direction of Japan at that time. Um, but Saigo is, you know, just as instrumental in the Meiji restoration as anybody. And, um, you know, he eventually breaks breaks way with it. Um, but I really didn't expect that to be his life arc. Yeah, me either. I kind of like you again, using a movie that is like not based on the book, if we're being honest. But like, I kind of assumed when I started reading it that he would have been like, maybe not like a, a daimyo or something, but like, in that hierarchy, like somebody who had, you know, a good estate and had like, you know, some type of um, ancestry that gave him credence. And then through that, he was involved in certain things and then it developed from there. But he's really like he's literally just a guy who, you know, is intelligent and really uh, like strong willed and kind of just kind of came from nothing and became this humongous political figure um, that was a huge proponent and then all of a sudden a huge detractor. And like, I can see where like the legend really grew because he was like, he's like every other person. He's just a regular dude who did all these crazy things and then led this rebellion, you know? Yeah. And like the interesting thing about him though, is that, um, he was someone who was like politically significant and influential in like the regime, you know, before he kind of goes, uh, off the reservation. But he was also like widely known and respected and, and highly regarded. Like I, I think, you know, it makes it clear that like even like the just like the general population. And I don't think that's like always the case with people, especially like people in, in the court in these, uh, you know, um, monarchies or, or or however you want to describe what whatever Japanese Japan's government was at the time. I mean, really every government, any political official, unless they're... Um have some exceptional quality is pretty much despised despised or like not even known i mean we can think about like the french revolution and these characters that we read about in carlisle who are like very influential probably in the happenings of of the uh, of the regime but um it's not like the peasants know their names with the exception of a few you know and i right I don't know. I think that's something that's kind of stand out about him in terms of like his character in, in Japanese history. Well, and I think he's just kind of looked at as like a man of the people. Like when it was getting into it in the second half of the book, like his lord of Satsuma literally was going to him and was like, hey, we need you like to save face. Like we need you for just the public backing for people to know that like they're being taken care of and like feel confident that we're doing the right things. And then they send him, you know, to go and advocate for the province and like, and the whole time he's not despised, he's celebrated. Like he's literally a man of the people. Like no matter what he does, people are like, Oh, like it's going to be okay. Cause like Psy goes on our side. Yeah. Turned out to be a bad bet. That is true. No, man, they got the statues and they can feel good. I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> the statue of him in the cage or whatever on the island. And um... <laughs> I don't think any peasants are like, oh, fuck, like the samurais don't get to keep their uh, their claims on land or whatever. They don't, they don't, you know, like the average Joe doesn't. That's not what's important about Saigo at all. You know what? Do you, I, so you think it's like his character and like how he um, 
how the population saw like the like Japanese virtue in him. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, they're not super concerned with the political political significance of like you know the samurai's influence or whatever in the in the in the court. No, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe I don't remember a hundred percent. But like, to my recollection, like, there's this romance about him from a military standpoint. But he only ever won one battle that he was actually like outmatched. Like everything else, he just played politics or had the upper hand up until obviously his rebellion. But like, it's like he's dignified as this like, you know, great leader and this warrior and everything else. But he only ever did like there was that one uh, uh, battle. I can't remember with Choshu or something like that, where he was like outnumbered two to one and one. But other than that, like, it's not like he was like against all odds constantly coming out alive he wasn't george washington like well i mean george washington well yeah i mean towards the like during the satsuma rebellion i mean he was completely outnumbered and he was outgunned and he was on his his army wasn't using modern tactics and they they lost like he held out for a long time in a noble way but it's not like it was like Oh, he's going to win this. You know, what it was, was he just, it was prolonged. He dragged, he dragged, he dragged the army around and around and around on these mountains, I guess, in hopes that they would tire. Right. No, and I'm saying like excluding that like rebellion when he's actually like a political force and let's just call it like the middle of the book. You know, he's like when he was going to negotiate, um, I can't even remember the province he was negotiating at the time, but when everything was going up and down. Um, I don't know. It's like he, he more played politics and like was finding like reasonable ways to mitigate problems as opposed to like constantly fighting. And then when he was finally outnumbered, like he was eventually defeated, you know, yeah. but the whole time he's getting all these accolades and like people are talking about, you know, all these victories and like, you know, him as this military leader and this warrior. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, he seems like a really like brave guy and he's very um, noble, I guess, in his own way and in working towards this. And I can see why people would rally behind him. But I just kind of expected him to be more of a um, pre-revolution to have more of this like military prowess and like reason for being like regarded besides just his stature and his way of talking and his mannerisms. Yeah, I actually think I didn't consider that, um, Tom when I was reading this, but that's a good point. I mean, he seemed like the kind of guy who wouldn't shy away from a fight. You know, I remember there was that one passage where he was um, sort of lamenting that uh, I forget in which particular battle, but he was lamenting how he couldn't participate in it um, or that he didn't participate in it. And uh, that seems to be, you know, in line with his personality, but he didn't really have that many opportunities to, I guess, um, show off his prowess and their, uh, like you said, in a situation where he would be outmatched then the one he did was, you know, I mean, it wasn't, uh, there was really no chance of him winning anyway, you know, at the end of the day, right? Like what he was fighting for, whether, whether he won that particular fight or not, it was, you know, whatever it is he wanted to keep, wasn't going to be around anymore. And he, he wanted, he wanted to die. Yeah. Like he didn't want to win at all. No, no, he didn't. No, but I mean, he, he did exactly what he wanted to do. I mean, he, he went in and 
I I think his mentality was like, I want to die anyways. This isn't what I envision. This isn't what I want to be a part of. And like, I'll make my death a symbol of like my beliefs and like his his death turned into the story and he turned into the legend and like it is what it is. And he died like I think he wanted to, you know, so I guess he was smart in that sense. Mm, much respect. So another Japanese person who who dies a premeditated death. What a surprise. Yeah, right. Shocker. Dies by the sword. Um, okay, so this is something that like stood out to me, and, and I kind of, I don't know, I couldn't quite square it, and I figured maybe you guys have an idea, but like, so he describes how um, Saigo was really disgusted um, by the Japanese sailing their ships to, um, to Korean water to provoke their fire as like a pretext to go to war, um, and he saw that as like a dishonorable way to start a war, and I kind of like, got... I was wondering how he justified in his own mind, his own plan where that he wanted to be sent to Korea as a diplomat under the assumption that he would be slain there. And that would be a pretext for war with Korea. And I thought it was funny because he mentions it multiple, Ravina mentions it multiple times that like Saigo thought that was a very dishonorable trick for the, for the Japanese Navy to, you know, kind of like goad Korea into firing on them when he kind of wanted to do the exact same thing, at least from a diplomatic standpoint. Um, Again, goading Korea into violence, this time against himself, um, so they could go to war and kind of like revitalize the national spirit. Well, like, so I see what you're saying. And on the same note, what kind of like, I don't know, I confuses me a little bit is didn't he have the exact same plan with one of the provinces when he went to go his he proposed to go and be a diplomat. And when he was negotiating, he was like, well, you know, we're enemies, but if they kill me, then that's like an open rebellion against the emperor. And like, it'll give reason and like solidify um, what these this particular province is seen as. Um, and if they don't, then like we can negotiate and we can like settle this. So like he he used the same tactic that was proposed, but he was he was the one who had he was the brainchild of it in the first one. And then he was against it in the second one. Do you guys remember that at all? Um I mean, I remember that as like, no, well, I mean, sure. I mean, I believe it. Um, it's been so long since I finished the book at this point. But um, I mean, I, I remember that for Korea, but I don't remember for which province that was. No, I'm going to look it up real quick. It was when they were battling back and forth for, um, you know, who was going to actually have power. And um, I'll find it. Hold on. But I mean, regardless, the question stands is that why did he see that as a legitimate tactic when he saw, you know, uh, a, what I would say is is a, a similar concept as something that was so dishonorable that it disgusted him? I mean, I think, you know, it's probably a uh, a balancing of values, I guess is the way I'd put it. Like, it's the same kind of strategy, but in one, it's um like... I guess it's the the pussy way to go about it, if you will, right? Like he himself is sacrificing, you know, is sacrificing himself as like a um, a representative of Japan to um, to Korea in order to provoke war. That's you know that's one thing, right? Um, but just like sailing ships, um, you know, to intimidate or otherwise scare Korea into shooting upon them as a pretext for war. Uh, is not it's not manly i guess is the way i'd put it hmm. so i think i think it's like the the mixture of honor and manhood um 
you know, you need to have like the right, the right balance in that. Um, and I think that fits well with Saigo's personality, right? Like direct confrontation, um, you know, self-sacrifice for a greater cause. Um, those kinds of things are not embodied in sending ships, but they certainly are in the sense of sending a high level diplomat over to be killed, you know, um, to save your nation. Um, and I do think that like his like desire to die seems to to cloud his judgment in terms of some of the decisions he made. Like it was such like an overpowering uh, desire of his and finding a way to justify his death and all of that, that it, um, I don't know. I mean, it led him to, to do, to make decisions that led a lot of other people to death, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't get it. Everybody wants to die over there. I know. I don't get it either. It's like, and that kind of seems to be the thing that like, to the question, it, it, it's like, it, it adds up to us from the outside looking in where it's like, okay, well, you're looking for the same result, but you have two different methods. So if you're like, if you're playing a game of strategy, like you're, you're basically just talking semantics, like it's tit for tat. But in his mind, it was like, he's constantly focused on like, how am I going to die in this honorable way? And he's like, well, we can't do it that way. Cause that's cowardly. But if you just send me to go get killed, then I die honorably and we still get the same result. But to us, it's like, okay, well, you're talking about the same thing. You just want like this, like glorification in the process. Mm. That seems to be what his main goal was for most of, you know, the latter half of the book, especially was, you know, how can I die an honorable death? But mostly just how can I die? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Same dude. Um, Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. It's uh, he's he's an odd guy. I wouldn't, I guess part of it is like, I'm almost, um, I'm almost cautious to think about even trying to make, make him consistent, you know, in this way. Um, like if we were to ask Saigo how those are different, he might not even like respond well to it because it would be something that he hadn't reconciled inside himself. Right. Cause he also strikes me as like, although quite bright, it seems, you know, he gets sort of caught up in these like idealistic um furies and he you know like he's not this isn't a guy who you know had will write a treatise right on on proper diplomatic relationships with korea he'll write a poem about how he you know dies an honorable death in the halls of a korean king right like yeah he's like a romantic and an emotional person um and i think that like somehow shines through you know even through all these these books about the times or like especially this book i mean especially this book which i kind of want to talk about in a bit but um you know he is a romantic like in a in a way that is like kind of unique for someone who's like a, a a a diplomat and a in a warrior or general like we don't really see that side of historical figures as strongly as we do as we see saigos especially in this book well i mean pe- normally people like saigo or the um the acolytes right like they're the soldiers and you know the people who buy into the bullshit um they're stoics in a sense well i I, what i mean to say is that just that the the leaders you know tend to be a little bit more you know aware of and willing to bend to kind of real politics right whether that be in civilian or military um and uh are more accommodated to, to like the reality of the world where it seems like 
Saigo had this sort of dual talent of um, maintaining his romantic side um, in a in a real almost like naive way while still being you know a pretty um, astute political actor. Mm. I do have a question that I'll ask the two of you. So now that we've finished the book, what is your impression and what do you think of Saigo as a person, as a like his like what do you think of his actions, who he is? Do you think he's like a badass guy or do you think he's completely misguided? Do you think he's a psycho? Do you think he's just, you know, depressed? Like what is your opinion of Saigo now that we've read this book? I mean, I definitely view him as like a mentally ill person. Uh, <laughs> okay. And I don't mean that in a mean way to mentally ill people or to Saigo, but I mean, he he clearly has like deep-seated psychological issues and like trauma, especially associated with his att- attempted suicide. Like, t- like, I don't think that he has like Cotard's disease or anything, but like he seems like legitimately like felt like he should have died. Not that he was dead, Um and like that, like, I don't think he ever shook that, like, and I think it's like PTSD or something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he ever really shook that. Um, it's that, that he was supposed like, to die. Cause I thought the whole point was that after he survived a suicide attempt, it gave him like, you know, renewed purpose in life. Well, no, well, yeah. And no, like he, he took it that, um, that it was like a message that he was supposed to live, but he constantly thought about how he should have died with his friend. You know, so it's like that, like, tension where, like, he, maybe the gods are making him live, but, like, he himself wishes he die, had died with his friend who he misses a lot, you know? And, like, he couldn't shake that. Um, and that's not, like, that's not the foundation for a psychologically healthy person, <laughs> like, at all. True. And, like, he, regardless of, like, Japan's opinions on suicide, because I think it goes deeper than that with him. Yeah, I mean, I... So I don't find Saigo as compelling as clearly Japan's culture finds him. Um, he is an interesting figure. Uh, certainly learning more about him, I find him une- like unexpectedly interesting. Um, it wasn't, you know, as I said before, it wasn't just like, you know, some high-ranking lord who, you know, wanted to, to keep alive the old hierarchies. Um you know, Saigo had a progressive element to him in the uh, in the Meiji sense. Um, uh, I guess you could even call it like the. I mean, the whole Meiji Restoration is you know it has this sort of quasi-fascist vibe to it, right? Like there are these trends of modernization that go along with the traditional hierarchies, um, and I think that you know Saigo fell more on well that i think i mean self-professedly he's more on the the you know maintaining traditional society over the modernization um and was hoping to reconcile those by having that you know the uh national strength of japan to you know reinforce and support the the way in which they had lived for so long um but him as a person like it's just uh his life story it's like the events of his life are are fascinating um but how he responds to those events comes off to me as not particularly insightful and like it, it just comes off like romantic in a way that's kind of like aw saigo you know like i don't like like a 16 year old would approach something sometimes you know but a 16 year old who really wants to die in battle 
Right. A suicide. Well, like a 16 year old. I mean, I think I probably want to die in battle when I was 16. That's probably true. too. Yeah. You watch like the 300 Spartans and you're like, I want to be Leonidas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, Tom, Tom that's because yeah. you're gay. That's not because you're. Suicidal. Dude, that bod, though. That bod. Yeah. <laughs> the fucking. That <laughs> Gerard Butler bod. I mean, absolutely chiseled. I imagine that you guys were oiling up a lot as kids. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude, come on. You can't go out without a good coat, you know what I'm saying? Like, lather up. A good coat. Jesus Christ. (laughs) You gotta get greased up, man. Uh, Yeah, you know? But, no, I agree with you. I mean, that was kind of like what I expected you guys to say. I mean, definitely some interesting points um, and different perspectives from the two of you, you know, but... To me, it's kind of like a blend of both. I just, I don't know if maybe I hyped it up a little too much in my mind going into it, um, or I had like different expectations of who he was going to be and the things that he did. But I mean, there wasn't anything he did that I found particularly compelling or profound. Like he was obviously involved in politics. He was involved with people like he was a quote unquote warrior and a fighter. And, you know, he had this you know, romanticism and this spirit about him that I, I can fi- I found it interesting. Um, but there wasn't like anything he did or was a part of that. I was like, wow, like that's like really progressive. That's like way outside the box. Like, look how he's bringing people together. Or look how he's fighting against people. Or, you know, he's the mentor to somebody who is really, really powerful. And like, there really wasn't anything like exceptionally extraordinary about the guy it was an interesting story and i think he's an interesting guy and there's a lot of those why questions like why did he do that why did he think this way was he like mentally deranged what did he have ptsd like you have a lot of those questions and those curiosities but i just didn't feel like like the legend i don't feel like the story lived up to the legend i guess i think that overall the satsuma rebellion is fascinating and easily easy to romanticize to a westerner i'm sure to a japanese person because it's like japan's last gasp their last attempt at like maintaining this thousand year society you know that was like that after the 1600s the 1700s which were turbulent as well as the as the 19th century in japan that was like their final attempt to fight against progress and then the thing is that once that rebellion ended and with, with Saigo getting his fucking head cut off, from there, within 80 years, the Second World War had ended and Japan was like a modernized, approaching superpower. And, you know, as they are now, they're they're highly capitalist, highly westernized. Uh, like they underwent like the fastest economic and, and technological transformation I, I think we've seen. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems that way. And so like, I think, close to it, yeah. Yeah. So I think in like, in terms of that perspective, like that rebellion is easy to romanticize. Um, not necessarily because it's good. Not that, you know, modernization is bad, but I think if you can't look at traditional society falling apart and being replaced with the global modern society, you can't look at that and have a twinge of sympathy or you feel a little sad about what what is gone, you know, a little nostalgia, even if you didn't live in those times. I think you're, I, I mean, I think you're genuinely lying to yourself or you're just an unfeeling person. Right. But um, 
you know, and I think that is kind of what is romantic about that. And I think we look at like environmentalists sometimes in the United States in the same way, or I'm sure there's other shit, uh, you know, um, because it is that like the, the final holdouts of a dying breed and like, you know, that's a human story that we can all re- can relate to. And it makes us feel something, I think. And I think that's why this story is compelling to people. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think the hard thing, too, is just how unique the situation of Japan is um, and, you know, the opposing sides. Like, I didn't feel like anybody was like really the good guy. I didn't feel like you certainly can't feel like Japan's like a well-oiled machine that has their shit together, like that there's one side that's like, hey, this is what we need to do. This is for the best for the country. And like, we're going to handle it, you know, accordingly and appropriately and with action. It was like a complete clusterfuck. And, you know, Saigo and the Satsuma Rebellion is just one aspect of that. But they were, like you said, the, that last gasp of their of their society of their civilization and it was um it might not have been the greatest thing to be fighting for it's not like they were super organized or had a good plan to like you know an alternative plan that was better than what was going on in Japan but it is still like the breaking point from what Japan was to like how we see Japan now like that was that last rebellion that was the last thing that happened and then from there forward Japan moved on and now they are what they are today you know yeah I'd, I'd also add that I think it's worth noting um that you know these moments right Satsuma's rebellion and you know Saiga's death appear romantic um because it's the end right um and in Japan's case in particular right the but the the major restoration and its consequences are you know so immediate and so quick and they also you know it's a fusion of of the old and the new um but when we think about like let's say you know your european transformation from its traditional society to you know modern capitalism there were it was a long protracted battle you know like i don't i don't feel bad there's nothing to feel sorry about losing for the you know when the aristocracy takes flight in france right um the the you know first french republic is eventually defeated and then you know monarchy is restored right under the the bourbons again and um you know, and then you have the July Revolution and then eventually, you know, 1848. So it's like, it's harder to miss something that just uh, is, you know, over a process of 60 or 70 years. So, you know, slowly being or continually being supplanted um, socially, you know, and then the result of that is political, where everything happened in Japan so quickly. Um, and you know, lamenting for the traditional society, at least, you know, in a Western sense, um, in America, that's not really a thing. I mean, we really didn't have a traditional society in that, in that way. Um, but you know, in Europe, uh, it's just, you can lament the loss of something, right. But like, there wasn't a moment you can point to that. It was, it was over. I mean, not really. Right. Well, and, I think part of that has to do with how far behind Japan was like you're talking about when something gets overthrown or when one country goes through a revolution, um, a lot of times it is just political and maybe they do advance in their, you know, economics follow. But 
with Japan, like they were isolated. They were very far behind and them opening up the doors and like getting out with the new opened up all these things that they didn't have access to and completely changed the country like from top to bottom. So there's a very clear divide between, you know, Japan in 1850 and Japan in 1950 in a hundred year period. It's like two different countries where when a lot of other revolutions are happening, the whole revolution takes about 100 years, 60 years, 70 years, whatever it is. And then the after effect of it is just a different form of that country, a different way of politics or a different way of economics. But it's not like they're bringing in all this technology and advancing into this into this thing that like they weren't even close to being, you know. Like the contrast between France in 1600 to 1700 isn't the same as the contrast between Japan in 1850 to 1950. Oh, not even close. You know what I mean? So like there's also that aspect that changes the whole story. Yeah, I could tend to agree with that. Um, And I think we're, you know, we're all pretty much saying the same thing, which is that it happened really fast to Japan. And um, that that gives this, you know, story an extra... Um, emotional content it wouldn't have otherwise um so i have a question as well um i'm gonna gonna steal your thunder alex um because i mostly agree with what you wrote which is that so ravina is just like um as you said he leaves a lot to be desired as a writer um he you know he repeatedly uses poor analogies like the the uh the reason why the book is good is because Saigo is interesting, not because Ravina is a particularly strong writer. Um, you use the example of uh, his metaphor to the uh, for Nixon goes to China, which I also noticed. It was horrible. Um, I was just like, I like had to like put the book down. I was just like, you could have done without it, man. You could have just just re- recited the facts, and I'd be pleased. Just don't don't use a metaphor. I remember reading a uh, um, George Orwell's on writing. And, um, you know, and he was saying how, like, you know, when you pick a metaphor is supposed to it's supposed to make you imagine something that helps you remember what is occurring. Right. You you know, you when you think about metaphors, you have to you have to actually think about them. You know, you can't just write down the, you know, the first knee jerky thing that comes to your mind. Um, And, uh, you know, and like his poetry analysis and, you know, the metaphors of um, of like um that they contained you know it's just like he he clearly um doesn't have the tools to critique poetry or you know say anything particularly interesting about it but you know in light of reading ravina and we've read a few other you know historians so far you know what do you think makes a good history writer good writer of history i think that there are different i think there are multiple different ways in which you can approach like being a history writer and i think that in in, in some instances, being able to have a, uh, a crafted narrative that you're fitting your, your, your story into can be really good. I think Ravina did that. He opens the book with Saigo's death and closes it with Saigo's death. So I think that was what he was going for. But I think that often like where authors will like kind of like lose the, um, I don't know, their kind of credibility as a writer is, is when they try too hard, um, I think that I would be much more satisfied with the story um, without the poetry analysis and without the metaphors and with a, a, a colder recitation of the facts. You know, I think sometimes that that can be 
you know, adequate and rigorous and you can get something from it. Like not everybody is Shelby foot and not everybody will be Shelby foot. And that's like, I think that's okay. I think that's fine. Yeah. Not everybody's a novelist who's writing history. Um, yeah. There's a little bit of lack of respect that goes from uh, history writers or historians to, you know, to fiction writers. Um, and I thought a good example of like a standard that Ravina could have sought after was um, the first book that we read together, The Art of Thinking Freely. Uh, that was a great. Of Diderot. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, I'm not going to say it's the greatest book I've ever read in my life, but in terms of if you want to read a accessible history or biography, he just nailed it. Right. Because he doesn't, you know, I have my own issues with just like sort of popular history in general and how that's framed. But, you know, assuming we're, we are engaging with these works as introductions to topics rather than like the final word of something. Um, and, you know, what is being tried to be accomplished in accomplished in this. Um, I think the art of thinking freely is a good comparison because it's also a biography and um, it's clearly for, you know, a more accessible audience. I mean, he wrote this book as a way it looks like to at least somewhat overlap with the movie, like not as a companion piece, but like in a, in a way of boosting book sales, I presume. Um, But uh, yeah, it's just, if if you if you don't feel like you have the the tools to do do the writing thing well then you know just don't you, you can just leave stuff out i mean you don't need to have that in there in and uh, sometimes less is more for sure um i am you know my feelings on like history writing in general have changed quite a bit um on the one hand, what has stayed the same is that I've really just, uh, unless you are a rigorous historian, like when we read the the Meiji Restoration, the Beasley book, um, I am, I'm not for the sort of objective, authoritative, you know, almost uh, third person God point of view uh, with that's that that way of writing, um, and that's mostly because. Beasley's trying to make a, a very particular historical argument. This is clearly something that um, he wants to have reviewed by his academic peers. Um, but of the things that we've read so far, I I think actually, I mean, I just think Carlyle's history is the best way to write history. Um, <laughs> I just, I do. I mean, uh, you know, fucking no, no hold bars on where you're coming from. Right. Nobody has to ask you what you you think about something. Um, and it's it's passionate and, uh, you know, well researched, clearly. Um, but it doesn't it really doesn't come off as authoritative. I don't have like I almost feel like when I read some of these history books, it's like having the super ego. You know, I feel like I have the I have society, you know, like somebody looming over me telling me what to think. Whereas with Carlisle, I feel like he's just like passionately screaming in my face. And that that feels better, I guess, is the way I put it. Whenever I think of Carlisle, I think of like a uh, street preacher, like a guy on a corner, you know, on a box yeah. shouting. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I in turn. Yeah, I, I mean, I if I had to pick a, a kind of history writer to read, probably Carlisle, if I was trying to like learn about a subject. I'm not going to pick a writer like Carlisle. Um, but 
in terms of having like emotional impact on me, like I was, I think a lot about um, like towards the end of it, like the descriptions of, of the executions and stuff. And like, I think about that cause it like really got a strong emotional reaction out of me. And I think that Ravina wanted to get a strong emotional reaction out of me with this book. And he failed utterly, like not even close um, regardless of how romantic the characters are. Well, because it's like when you're telling a romantic story, you have to have romance in it. You know, I don't have to feel any particular way about Marie Antoinette, right? Or the, or King Louis the Sixteenth. But when Carlyle describes their death, it's moving. You yeah. know, because you can tell Carlyle feels something about it. Uh, I don't think Ravina feels anything about Saigo, or clearly not as strongly as Carlyle does about the uh, about French royalty. So it, it it doesn't have the it doesn't have the same gut punch and there's like Saigo's story is cool right but I I will never I will never forget that passage in um Carlisle's French Revolution where there's that that one Swiss guard who is just or not Swiss guard um French French guard like a, a little anecdote where there's like a mob outside of the the uh the prison and he's you know, released free. And it's clear that if you leave this, this prison that you're going to die. And he's just like, basically like, peace, I'm out. I'm going to go die. <laughs> and he just does it. And Carlisle writes that scene. So, you know, so dramatic and, and cool. And I'll never forget that. I will probably forget. I have forgotten most of this book so far, you know, since we've read it. Um, yeah. And as will be evident to us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm hey, with you, man. Fucker. <laughs> I would love to, I would actually really love to reread, um, reread Carlisle. It's been a year. I'm surprised to hear you say that. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Yeah. At the time I was annoyed, but, um, a year out and I'm like, yeah, you know what? That would actually be kind of pleasant. I was, I was just going to say, I just feel like it wasn't, it was kind of forgettable. It wasn't enough of one or the other. I'm not really partial to a particular writing style when it comes to history but i do want to feel like i'm engaged with the book and that could be just through like more of a a dry way of writing as to like hey these are the facts this is the guy this is the backstory this is what led to these things these are the things that he did but like the actions that he takes and the situations that he finds himself in are interesting and rememberable but like i'm having a hard time remembering you know which province he went to negotiate with and or on the flip side, if you're going to take more of like a novelistic approach, like give me a little bit more character building, give me a little bit more reason to like or dislike this character or like or dislike who he's opposing or like or dislike what he's opposing and, you know, make me feel something. And it just kind of felt like I was just reading through the book and it was like, yeah, this is kind of what happened. And here's some poetry that he wrote. And, you know, here's Princess Pig, you know, the the chick that he's banging um, oh yeah, right. <laughs> about her. Oh damn! Actually, I take it back. This book was good. I remember well, and it's that. Like, <laughs> but it's like, but like he throws that stuff in there, but then like barely elaborates on it. It barely comes up later. It's like very infrequently mentioned. You don't get a feeling for like why he's with Princess Pig and like why like it's like you got to do one or the other. Like you're either gonna like include that stuff and make it interesting, or you're not gonna include it and tell me what happened. And it just seemed like it was. It was too all over the place, and I have a hard time remembering 
all the details of the story because in between the details of the story, I'm reading things that like he's trying to make more interesting and to like build up into this, you know, more well-rounded book, but it just didn't work. I mean, I just, I found myself constantly being like, okay, is this important? Is this not important? Do I understand what he's getting at here? Is this Nixon goes to China? No, like, like what the hell is going on? You know, it's just like, And I just like, I'm really one or the other, like, give me a really like good type of biography with a lot of detail and more color and more relationships and like, give me some emotion about these characters or just don't at all. And just tell me what happened, what they did that was so great and make me feel something by what the character lived and did and his actions and his motives and like the basics. But don't do this like in between thing where I'm just like trying to figure out what the hell the point is. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading uh, Eric Foner's um, Reconstruction book right now. Uh, and it's, you know, like Foner doesn't, he doesn't try to be cute about it. You know, he's not writing, he's he, he's writing for either serious amateurs or, um, or you know, people who uh, are actively studying history. And it makes, you know, he knows what he's trying to do in that case. Um, and the story of reconstruction is something I'm personally interested in. So I don't really give a shit, you know, as long as the writing doesn't get in the way of what it is I'm trying to know, uh, I don't mind, but you know, as a, as a strong preference, I like people with very, you know, pointed points of view, um, who express it in a way that at least sticks out as memorable, um, memorable and, and well executed, uh, but none of this like, uh, you know, hey, fellow kids kind of thing that goes on where, you know, it's just trying to to drop things that will um, that will relate to their audience in kind of a sporadic way. I got a bit. I get a bit of that from Mike Duncan, too, if I'm going to be honest, though. Obviously, yeah. he's a much better writer than this guy, but he's got a bit of that vibe as well. Hate to say it. No, I mean, I don't disagree at all. I don't think Duncan's a strong writer in the slightest. I he's think he's smooth he's, reading. Yeah, smooth reading. I mean, he. I think he's he's better. You know, I think that this is uh, um, Mike Duncan being more of an amateur historian, where you know Ravina here is a professor and you know specialist. It's kind of the the uh, the fall of the specialist, right? You know, you don't have the the man of of uh, the Renaissance man anymore. You know, you have somebody who specializes in two hundred years of history in one country rather than you know, trying to learn it all. Um, but yeah, I just don't think, uh, I don't, I think, I think Mike Duncan, because of his podcast, you know, has a little bit more experience with narrative history and, uh, he, he executes it in a way that is, uh, is easily accessible. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't think Mike Duncan's a very strong writer at all. I'm still going to read Citizen Lafayette when it comes out. It sounds sick, but fuck yeah, but yeah, right. I mean, that's the, that's the problem with deciding what the the direction you're going to go in terms of the books you're going to read, um, how seriously you're going to take it. You know, I don't think yeah. his, his books aren't made to be scrutinized. And I think to a degree, I mean, I don't necessarily think that Ravina wrote this in the expectation that it was going to be scrutinized in regards to his literary prowess. Yeah, or like no. uh, as his magnum opus um, or anything no. like that. Hey, I, I'll read his Meiji Restoration history. Um if it's a engaging one, that might be actually be kind of kind of good supplement. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's not awful, but it's like, I don't know, and this kind of just like popped up in my head, not that this is like the basis of whether the book is good or bad, but like, kind of think about it this way, right? So on my book, well, let me first ask, like, you guys both saw the movie The Last Samurai. Did you think it was a relatively good movie? I fucking love that movie. I don't yeah. think it's a good movie, but I love it. Yeah, yeah, well, that's pretty good, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's I guess I should watch. define good. Yes, it was fun to watch. It, it's an interesting movie and like so on and so forth. Not that it's historically accurate or anything, but what kind of like catches me and I'm like, OK, what? So on the front of my book, it says the real life story that inspired the hit movie. But if you named this book instead of The Last Samurai, The Life and Battles of Saigo Takamori and the movie was still called The Last Samurai, would you have any idea that these two things were even related, except for the rebellion at the end? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, we hard might, to, because to... we remember that the, the you know the main samurai in, in The Last Samurai is Saigo, um, but we probably wouldn't have found it, you know, necessarily. <laughs> I don't think this book would have... I don't think this book would have sold so hot. Otherwise, well, yeah, and, I don't think so either. <laughs> and so I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at is like, yes, there's some details that you could probably tie it together. But for, for like any average person or even us when we were selecting this book, like it's not like it was, you know, and I guess part of this has to do with the movie not being historically accurate. But it's just like there's not a lot of things that make you feel like, oh, this is a book that can be made into a movie. Like I would never expect this book had I just read it and not seen a movie. I'd be like, well, they're not going to make a movie about this. Like this is just a dude in Japan. Like I think they should make another movie about this and make a better one. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. Uh, you know, we actually pulled this book at, on uh, my friend Kai's recommendation. I was talking to them about it the other day. And they hadn't actually read it, but it had been recommended to them by a professor, um, which I is interesting. I don't really know what exactly to make of that. But Kai was like, yeah, it was recommended me, to me really strongly by a professor because um, they focused on the Meiji Restoration in their undergrad, I think. Or maybe it was grad school. Uh, I don't know. But they spent a lot of time studying it, I guess. So that's kind of I don't know how, what to make of that, actually. Yeah, I don't know either, although I will say that there's just, uh, um, I mean, I don't know. We were talking about, like, uh, quality of writing, right? Like, I'm not in a position to judge the uh, the historical, or the quality of history um, in, in a professional sense of this book, um, but just as far as, you know, what mode in which you deliver the information, uh, I think, you know, I think we have a pretty decent sense of that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so the, um, there, I didn't really, couldn't come up with a good theme for this week. So, uh, <laughs> I just thought, Hey, you know, the letter of the week is S for samurai. Cause they're cool. They do stuff. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, man. That's so true. <laughs> so what does samurai mean to you? Yeah. What is it? How, how has samurai, you know, impacted your life? Made you, made you who you are, Alex? Well, <laughs> Fellas, I gotta tell you. Uh, <laughs> Is it your strong will to die? Yeah, it's just that every day I wake up and I just put the fucking gun to my head and I'm like, <laughs> am I gonna do it, man? Am I gonna just log on and fucking do spreadsheets from home today? Or am I gonna go out like Saigo? I do we the are spreadsheets. Missing that. I do the spreadsheets. Yeah, as we can tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I will say it's... It's interesting and unfortunate that, like, the more that I've learned 
through this whole Meiji restoration and Japanese literature unit. Um, you before this, it was you know just like the romanticism about samurai. It was like you know who they were and how they fought and like how disciplined they were and you know you just have all these like stories and these ideas in your mind about it and this whole Meiji restoration thing just it's like such a clusterfuck in such like a pyramid scheme in so many different ways of um you know the way that their feudalist society worked and the way that like you know samurai were supposed to be respected and regarded even though they weren't really doing anything and just like it just kind of like put a little um uh what do you call it? it 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 took like the shine off of the samurai for me does that make sense yeah i feel that uh i mean i will say i am thankful that i now have the word koku in my vocabulary true uh, that 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 has been a benefit from the samurai the way in which they they measured wealth um they but... literally measured wealth <laughs> by amounts of rice <laughs> like well Hey, you got to do what you got to do. You it almost seems what racist. You got a koku. <laughs> <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you, Tom. I think that the, I've never really had like a, any type of like nostalgia or, um, or attraction to like knights or anything like that. But like, you know, the, the early 90s or late 90s, early 2000s with a lot of the, importing of japanese culture or at least japanese commercial culture and you know i can think of like animes like ronin warrior or Rurouni kenshin right like those kinds of things were part of my my youth and the reality of the samurai is you know i mean it's just it's like an it's another feudal click right like there's nothing really exceptional about it it has the pomp and circumstance that every other traditional elite had uh but there's nothing super compelling about the the structure or anything that made it you know so great it had an immense amount of self-regard but that's about it i think with me like i was i've always been like a big fan of westerns so like samurai movies at least were kind of like my only understanding of it until we started get re-getting to this and i've always liked samurai movies and i've watched a lot of them and you know i especially like the the kurosawa ones like everybody like they're really great and I think like they obviously are uh, extremely influenced by Western by um, Western movies made in the West, you know, in Italy and America. And I think like obviously vice versa with the Clint Eastwood Westerns. So like I always whenever I would think about samurais, I would think about them kind of similar to cowboys and uh, in the American West, which I think is probably not that accurate. But it was the understanding I had prior to reading more about it just because of film well that's interesting because when you think about like a cowboy character right like they're not supposed to be i mean they're supposed to be good but like bad good you know like they're they're outlaws they're you know on the outskirts society they're if they're doing good things they might not be doing them for good reasons or they're doing it to make up for some horrible thing in the past or in like some john wayne westerns uh ex-confederate soldiers who go out and kill comanches like i don't even know what was going on with that but yeah. uh they're they're not they don't have to be likable or lovable or you know be noble in any way so that could influence you know my normal understanding is like you know they have the samurai code you know bushido and uh self-discipline and you know all these noble qualities but um that's not 
that's something I think Saigo tried to embody, but I don't I don't really think that I think most of the the uh samurai elite were unless they were you know, low level in the country or something like that, but any ones that were in Edo didn't you know, they they slept with prostitutes and they they uh you know were debauched like every other ruling clique. Mm. Well one thing that's interesting about samurai is that they could kill anybody they wanted. Uh which I know yeah. they they yeah, they talk about that a little bit. They're like they they had a uh, a privilege or something. It was like almost like immunity. Uh they could kill somebody for slighting them if they weren't a samurai. You know, like a samurai could kill a peasant. Um uh, pretty much with impunity in Japan and like some like you know, I guess infamously would abuse that privilege. So like I do think of it sometimes like the uh, the goshi, you know, the landless samurai mm-hmm. or the masterless samurai. Uh, what did masterless samurai? Is that Ronin? Ronin, yeah. Yeah, like that. They those are are characters similar to cowboys, I think, it, or bandits or whatever. You know, wild west bandits. I think that's probably why the the films mirror each other so much, or <laughs> uh, directly remake each remake themselves. You know, in the case of Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, on that note, um, so next week, what are we doing next week? What did we agree uh, we're doing? I don't remember. Um, we're doing something. We're we're doing the first half of Fear and Loathing? Yeah, we must be. Yeah, right. So we're um, for next week, we're going to take a little bit of break as the uh uh with the japanese literature really we've we've finished here but the uh um, we're going to do a little bit of a wrap-up episode after the election Uh, before the election we want to get in um, fear and loathing uh on the campaign trail 72 by hunter s thompson um it's going to be two episodes and then we'll um going to do we're going to do a halloween episode hopefully and then after that we'll do a little wrap-up thing for the japanese unit and then on to our next unit british adventure Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a good night. Bye. Good night.